I have the distinct pleasure this morning to open up God's Word with you all as we look at Exodus 14, continuing through the Exodus here. But I wanted to just give you a a story that I thought was fitting for our study today. If you're a history buff at all, as I am, you may recall the story of Operation Dynamo. Operation Dynamo. That occurred during World War II in 1940. For those of you who may have maybe been asleep during history class in school, I'll just refresh your memories. During World War II, Allied forces found themselves surrounded and trapped by the German army on the beaches of Dunkirk. Following the Battle of France, the British Expeditionary Force, along with French and Belgian troops, they they faced imminent capture or destruction by the advancing German forces. In a desperate uh, and unprecedented operation, a massive evacuation was organized to rescue these troops that were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk. Operation Dynamo, as it was called, involved the evacuation of soldiers from these beaches of Dunkirk using a vast array of naval uh, vessels, civilian boats even, and even small crafts to rescue these men. Despite the dire circumstances and constant air attacks by the German Air Force, the evacuation was largely successful. Over the course of the operation, Around 338,000 Allied troops were safely evacuated and brought back to the shores of England. The evacuation of Dunkirk is often regarded as a a miraculous and even a pivotal event in the war, as it saved a significant portion of Allied troops from the beach. Imagine that for a moment. Those troops who were trapped on the shores of Dunkirk, they they must have assumed that they were going to die on that beach. Every effort they made to try to flee, they were then pulled back based on the the German forces and their their fencing that they, they set up. These Allied troops, they were sitting ducks, many who had lost any hope, terrified and and scared for their lives, and they were most certainly going to die. But the miraculous thing is that these troops were indeed saved. But you know, this is not the first time in recorded history that we've seen a a large number of people trapped on the beach with no way to escape, have we? This morning, as we look at Exodus 14, we will see the Israelites in a similar situation as they appear to be pinned down near the sea. Please open your copy of God's Word with me this morning as we will look at Exodus 14, and we'll keep right in line with the book theme of Exodus, which is Yahweh's redemption of Israel. Yahweh's redemption of Israel. I've titled this message, Pursuit, Panic, and Protection, as we will see these events unfold in this text today. If I had to give a theme to our lesson today, it would be this, that Yahweh is glorified through the providential protection of his people and the judgment exercised against his enemies. It's important for us to make note that when we read this chapter, 
We must remind ourselves, just as we should when we read any other chapter of the book of the Bible, of who the main character is. See, the main character is not Moses. It's not Aaron. It's not even the miraculous events that we've learned and have been revealed. No, the the main character here and through all the texts and through the scriptures is the Lord, Yahweh. This morning, I would like for us to consider four acts that display the astounding providence of Yahweh. Four acts that display the astounding providence of Yahweh. So follow along with me as I read Exodus 14, beginning in verse 1, and we will stop at verse 20. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made chariots ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because that we're, there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19, the angel of God who is who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. 
So it became between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. In this first act of this chapter we see in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the plan. The plan. Let me just take a moment to set the stage for us where we are through this Exodus journey. Again, Pharaoh has allowed Moses and the Israelites to, to finally leave Egypt after Yahweh uh, has permitted the, the ten plagues or strikes, if you will, to occur. The Israelites had set out to travel to Succoth and were camped in a town called Etham, as you learn in the previous chapter. And, and now we find ourselves here in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, as we now see the route, the route that Yahweh gives his clear and concise plan to his prophet Moses of where the Israelites are to travel to next. Look at uh, verses 1 and 2 again with me. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. See, Moses is instructed to turn back and lead the Israelites out of Etham and to travel to this, this new destination that is before Pi Haharoth and in front of Baal Zephon by the sea. Clear instructions that the Lord has given to Moses where he expects them to be. The Israelites who had been traveling by way of the wilderness are ordered to turn back and head towards the Red Sea where they will pitch camp now for the third time in their journey. You know, if we were to look here at this geographical map, kind of get a sense of what's, what's going on here, we, we can find in the northeastern region of Egypt the city of Ramses where I believe the capital where Pharaoh was residing at. This is where the Egyptians um, uh, excuse me, the Israelites had, had left. This is believed to be, again, the capital where, where Pharaoh resides. So the question is, where on the map has Yahweh instructed Moses to lead the Israelites to? We know that Yahweh commanded Moses to guide the Israelites to the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds, as it's called, in Exodus 13, 18. And you can see here is the Red Sea. You can see that, uh, I'll do a closer shot here for us, kind of zoom in here. You can see that the, the Red Sea is made up of two different gulfs. Uh, one, one is uh, on either, either side of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, the gulf on the west, the left side of the map, is known as the, the Gulf of Suez. And uh, the gulf to the east on the right side is known as the Gulf of Aqaba. So going back, you kind of see the, the Red Sea kind of parts in two different ways. So it looks kind of like bunny ears is what my children call it. But zooming in here, we see north of the Gulf of Suez, we see uh, some other bodies of water, uh, a few different lakes that we see here, Lake Bala to the north. We also see Lake Timsah at the center, and south is the Great Bitter Lake. Again, this may have been one large body of water at the time of this expedition, so where exactly did the Israelites land? Where, where are they encamped for the third time? What bank of the beach did they find themselves? Well, see, Munchink 
has been spilled over centuries of this geographical location. However, there's no assumptions that can be made. The, the scriptures do not spell out where exactly this is located. However, that, uh, what we can conclude is that the Israelites were most assuredly in a terrible location if anyone was to chase after them. Migdal, which means watchtower, may have been a military post of some sort, possibly to the Egyptians. And then they have to the other side, Pi-Haharoth, which is the rendering of an Akkadian phrase, an old ancient language that means mouth of the canal or gorge. So they, they're between a, an enemy encampment and a body of water. Not, not ideal places that you want to find millions of Israelites camping at with no way of escape. See, it's unclear where the geographical location would have been where the Israelites would have landed. But what is clear is Yahweh's instructions are for the Israelites to camp in a space that was, again, between the military posts and a large body of water. You know, it doesn't take a military strategist to know that this was not an ideal space to lead millions of people to, especially after you've made enemies with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and leaving that city. They're going to encamp in a place that would otherwise leave no way of escape if any threat was to present themselves against the Israelites. And yet this is all part of Yahweh's providential plan as we now see that he, he gives his resolve in verses 3 and 4. He gives his resolve in 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. And they did so. See, Yahweh's divine purpose for the Israelites to travel from one encampment to another and back again was all part of his tactical plan. The, the plan to lure the Egyptians after them. You know, I'm sure Moses may have heard a few grumbles about where they were roaming. I mean, we see that later on in this text. I know if I, I've had my fair share of grumbles and complains when Maybe I'm working on a project and I have to take multiple trips back to Home Depot to get items that I forgot or had to replace because I didn't buy it the right the, the first or second time. And so I can imagine the frustration that perhaps these Israelites had. However, the fact that the Israelites have now ended up in a pickle of a spot, well, see, that was all part of the divine ruse that Yahweh has set up. It was always God's intention to make Moses and the Israelites appear lost in the wilderness so that it would lure Pharaoh to pursue the Israelites. Now one could beg the question and ask, why would, why would a, a holy and loving God, why would he want to entice Pharaoh and his armies to chase after the Israelites? I mean, after all, were, were they not let go from the land of Goshen and, and freed from the rule of Pharaoh? Were, they, were their hands wiped clean and done with Pharaoh already? Why would, why would God lead them after the Israelites? 
Does Yahweh find pleasure in seeing his people suffer? Absolutely not. Yahweh is not sadistic. He he doesn't find pleasure in causing pain to the Israelites. This is not some sort of cat and mouse game that the Lord is playing here and that he finds delight in. No, that's completely the opposite of the Lord Yahweh's character. Lord Yahweh has an intended purpose to receive glory through the good and evil of people. Look back at verse 4. He spells it out for us here. The Lord clearly gives his, his resolve here. He says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And look at this. He says, And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The Lord's utmost purpose for why he does what he does is so that he would ultimately be glorified by his children and even his enemies. The mighty power and works of the Lord has been on display on many occasions up to this point, but he's going to most certainly make his presence known throughout Egypt that he is indeed the Lord of Lords. We see that after Yahweh has given his providential plan to Moses that Moses does exactly as he was commanded to do. He communicates the new traveling agenda for travel uh, to Israel. And did Israel abide? Did they uh, agree uh, under that authority that was given unto Moses to to move on? Look at the end of verse 4. This little phrase shows the obedience of Moses and Israel. And they did so. However, the scene now changes from the interaction between Yahweh and Moses back to the city of Ramses where we find Pharaoh and his servants now. As we look now at the second act, the pursuit, verses 5 through 9, the pursuit. Look at verse 5 as we consider Pharaoh's persistence. Pharaoh's persistence. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. You know, how quickly their griefs turned into practical consideration. Here is a people that have just endured through the great loss of the ten strikes handed down by Yahweh, again, just to refresh our memory of what they've lost. They've lost crops, they've lost land, livestock, water, food, even firstborn children. And yet they, they, they have a change of heart, it says here, about letting the Israelites leave. Pharaoh and his cabinet were clearly blinded by their desire for wealth and maintaining their, what was left of their economic and social status, that they, they looked past all of the dead bodies that the Egyptians had to bury and saw their only source of free labor fleeing from their view. Blinded by their sin, they couldn't let those Israelites leave. 
Pharaoh just could not simply let that happen. Greed of the heart, that, that envy of the heart, so prevalent in Pharaoh that, again, evidence that he was hardened and looked past all of the turmoil that Egypt had faced and saw his only source of income leaving. Acting on his own accord and at the Lord's behest, what does Pharaoh do now? Well, we see now in verse 6, we see now Pharaoh's preparation, verses 6 through 7. Pharaoh's preparation. It says in verse 6, so he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Pharaoh readies his convoy with the best of the best of what he had remaining and has 600, 600 of his most elite chariots and perhaps thousands of other chariots collected, prepared, and equipped for enforcing the return of the Israelites back to the capital. Now, when we think about a chariot, we often think of racing chariots, which typically housed only one person. However, war chariots were a little bit different. War chariots, here's a, a golden sculpture that was collected in, in, uh, from the first, second century that kind of depicts that. War chariots consisted of uh, two people, the, the driver who readied their whip to drive the horses, and also a passenger who was usually the, the, the wheeled weaponry man, the, the fighter, uh, wielding a bow or spear typically. So, so consider all the preparation Pharaoh has done to ready himself and his troops. Reading what soldiers had survived through the plagues with army or armory and horses, having these choice chariots prepared for travel, it would be really equivalent to like SEAL Team 6 today where they, they got the best of the best to go, go out and retrieve these Israelites. You know, Pharaoh perhaps even summoned uh, the last capable Egyptian men that were left to, to mar march after Israel. So here is Pharaoh making his last efforts, collecting all that he had left and what remained that wasn't destroyed. And all that preparation he has put into going and retrieving back the Israelites. But all of that preparation, all, all of the equipping and the, 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 the armory and the, and the weapons and and horses, and all those things that he put his efforts into, all of that, and yet not one foot could ever step a, uh, step a foot outside of the city unless Yahweh permitted it. All, all that Pharaoh did, everything he put into that last-ditch effort, he could not leave that city unless Yahweh permitted it. And permit that he did. As we see now in verses 8 through 9, Pharaoh's pursuit. Pharaoh's pursuit. Look at verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. An interesting note to make about that word used at the end of verse 8, the sons of Israel were going out boldly. When you look at the Hebrew word for boldly, it translates into the word hand. 
Hand was often a, a symbol of might and power. And here that figurative word could have implied that the Israelites were traveling in great numbers, which they were, as again, we, we know that may have been over a million Israelites traveling together. So it could re- be referring to the number of people traveling. Uh, another uh, belief is that it could have been that they were traveling under the mighty hand of God, under the, the, the sovereign hand of God and his protection. You know, either conclusion would presumably be true as this great number of people were indeed traveling under the Lord's protection. Yahweh permitted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to proceed after the Israelites. Look at verse 9. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. It's unclear how far Pharaoh and his armies had to travel to reach where the Israelites were encamped. However, they, they arrived, and lo and behold, where have the Israelites landed? Exactly where God instructed Moses to lead them to. Find them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. Obedience. Obedience is what we see displayed here. Listening to what the Lord has commanded and doing so. You know, we simply can't look, overlook that obedience that they displayed. See, when the Lord gives his instruction, he expects complete obedience. He expects complete obedience to his word. And you know, that same truth remains for even us today. That is why we would contest that the scriptures are objective and sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. God has clearly defined what he expects of us in his word. That's why it's important for us to find regular time in our day to spend reading God's word, to understand what is it that the Lord has commanded you and me. You know, that's the blessed assurance that believers have, that although our paths of life changes, right, the word of the Lord always remains the same, never changing. Let's now consider the third act in this text. We've seen the, the plan, act one. We've seen the pursuit. But now let's look at the, the third act here, which is the protest and proclamation in verses 10 through 14. Let's look at verse 10. In verse 10, we see Israel's cry to Yahweh. As Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Being in a peculiar spot as the Israelites were between Migdal and the sea did not seem like such a bad idea at the time when you're not being chased. I mean, after all, they were vacationing on the beach. Things were glorious. Things were wonderful. They've just been freed by the, by the Egyptians, and here we are in this beautiful beachfront. And it wasn't until they saw with their own eyes the Egyptian army on the horizon drawing closer to them and 
that they begin to panic. You know, there's, there's some parallelism going on here. It's, uh, you know, just as quickly as the Egyptians had dismissed their calamities to chase after Israel in verse 5, we see the sons of Israel hastily dismiss the assurances of Yahweh at the first sign of trouble. Both were haste decisions made by the Egyptians and the Israelites. Douglas Stewart in his commentary wrote this, and I included this in your handout, this wonderful quote from Douglas Stewart. He says, quote, the, the sight of hundreds, perhaps thousands of approaching chariots apparently drove all memory of God's assurances through Moses to the Israelites in, verse, in chapter 14, 1 through 4, out of their minds. Those assurances were relatively generally worded, and it is possible that many or most Israelites had mistakenly regarded them as promises that Pharaoh's pursuit would not reach them but fail en route, end quote. They thought that they had their, their, their last good riddance of Pharaoh back at Ramses, and and perhaps they thought that Pharaoh would be thwarted before even reaching the Israelite camp. Yet here comes a, a, an army after them. And although panic has set in and the reminder of what Yahweh spoke through Moses to them had quickly faded away, they, they still turned to the Lord and cried out unto him. See, in the midst of their terror... They turned to Yahweh and let their outcry be known, as it says they went to the Lord in prayer. Had Yahweh forsaken his people and turned his face away from them? Had they made a mistake in their voyage and made a wrong turn to the end, end up in a geographical snare? Was there something they did wrong? Was Moses losing his mind and led us to the wrong beachfront? As we learned earlier, they were obedient to the end up exactly where the Lord would have them. It would be preposterous to think that the Lord had hidden his face from the people whom he loved and, and, and redeemed. Yahweh, who had led them by the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, as we learn in chapter 13, was still leading his people. Even today, that day, that this occurred. He was still leading his people. This is a, a timeless truth as we see many times throughout Scripture. You see, some 400 years after the Exodus, King David understood this truth as he composed Psalm 34. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, look at verse 15. Does, does Yahweh hide his face from the cries of his people? Look at verse 15, Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry for help. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. They cry out, and Yahweh hears and delivers them from all of their troubles. Yahweh is near to those who are heartbroken and saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, the Lord heard their cries. 
he, he heard the pleas from Israel. He loved these people. He wanted to see them through. He had his ear to them. Yahweh saves those whom he loves. But you see, the, the Israelites couldn't just simply rely on that confidence and knowing that God was going to save them or redeem them out of this pickle situation that they were in. No, their, their, their pleas now quickly turned into protests against Moses. As we now look at verses 11 and 12, we see Israel's contesting, Israel's contesting of Moses. Verse 11 and 12. Go back to Exodus 14. Look at verse 11. See now as Israel expresses their panic and distress towards Moses, they say then, then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? Grumbling and complaining is where they turn to. Not relying on God's truth, God, God's promise. No, they, they couldn't help themselves. They, they, they found the scapegoat in Moses. Moses, who was a prophet and leader of the people has earned a new role as listener in the complaint department. Driven by the fear that they were going to be killed, the Israelites speak out against Moses as they blame him for the predicament that they are now in. Such a, a bitter response by the Israelites. Such a fleshly response. They allow their distress, distress and emotions dictate their frustrations towards Moses. And in the midst of speaking out of their frustrations, they say, you know, we would have rather just died back in Egypt. We would have rather have been slaves and under the bondage of the Egyptians than to die as free men out in the wilderness. You know, when we read these responses and lack of trust from Israel throughout the Bible. You know, it's easy for us to kind of scoff and shake our heads at the foolishness of their flesh, isn't it? It's easy to look at that and think, man, how foolish are these Israelites? God is walking with them. He has redeemed them out of slavery, is walking them to the promised land, and yet they still complain. Why would they do such a thing? The truth is, we're all guilty of abandoning God just as much as the small, in the small trials of our lives, isn't it? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we face perhaps a large or difficult trial or circumstance, it's you know, usually easier to turn to the Lord in those moments. But do you turn to him in the small moments, the small trials of your life? You know, perhaps when you've Maybe you had a flat tire on the side of the road. A car battery won't start. Do you panic? Do you grow frustrated? What about when your flight to your destination has been canceled or pushed back later or you've been sitting in the plane on the tarmac for 
an hour or more and then asked to board a different plane. Do you grow frustrated in that? Do you not see the sovereignty of God's hand in those moments? I think we've all been guilty of that, haven't we? You know, regardless of how grand or small the situation is in our lives, Yahweh is still Yahweh and always saves those who belong to him. We can have a great confidence that the Lord is working out whatever it is that he wills in our life. Even in those small trials of life, he is still sovereign and overall. And that's exactly the message that Moses proclaims here in verses 13 through 14 as we see Israel's conservation. Israel's conservation. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. See, in light of bearing the grunt of Israel's complaints, Moses doesn't reciprocate the same frustrations back towards Israel. I'm sure that would have been much easier. No, instead he heralds a a sobering reminder to the people that they need not to fear. And the reason that they need not to fear was because the Lord God was going to save them by destroying the enemy. Not only was the enemy going to be destroyed and wiped out forever, forever, Israel will play no part in the defeat of the Egyptians here. They, They were not properly trained to fight, nor did they have the weaponry or tactical intelligence to combat the armies of the Egyptians. But what they did have, what they did have was something much greater than all of the armies in the world collectively. They had God. They had Yahweh with them. Israel needed not to lift even a fist towards the Egyptian army. They were to keep silent that word silent translates to the word deaf in the ancient language. As they had a front row seat to the annihilation of Pharaoh and his chariotry. You know, what a great comfort that must have been to hear the prophet Moses utter those words, do not fear. But how was Israel going to be saved? After all, they were, again, sitting ducks with their backs against the sea and They faced this great army of Pharaoh in closing in on them. Well, that leads us now to our fourth act that we'll consider here. We've seen the plan, seen the pursuit, the protest and proclamation, but now we're going to look at the powerful protector in verses 15 through 20. We return to the second interaction recorded in this text between Yahweh and Moses. And in the selected text, as we see in verse 15, we will look at Yahweh's inquiry. Yahweh's inquiry. How is Israel going to get out of this spot? Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. It's as if God was looking at Moses like, really? Really, Moses? 
Do you not know already who I am? Have I not displayed that in a number of ways already to you? Really? You cry out to me as if, I'm not sh- if I've not shown you my omnipotent power already, and yet you still fret? Lord's instructions are for the Israelites to continue on with their exodus. But where would they go? There's unfortunately a big problem. Actually, a big blue, wet problem. There's a sea of water, and we have no boats. We can't fashion something fast enough to get us across this sea. What are we going to do? What is to be done? We see now Yahweh doesn't just inquire, but Yahweh's imparting here in verses 16 through 18. Yahweh's imparting unto Moses. Verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. When I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. As we've seen time and time again in this book since chapter 3, Yahweh uses Moses and his staff as the means to display his supreme power as Yahweh commands the prophet to divide the waters. Fortunately, there are many religious institutions, I refrain to call them churches because they're not such, but there are many religious institutions in the evangelical world even that teach that, uh, that men who have the Spirit of God are able to perform such miraculous acts if they would just somehow harness the power of God, as if there's some mysticism behind that. I mean, they even anoint relics such as wooden staffs and believing that in doing so, they can be like Moses. Let's be clear, there's nothing, there, there's nothing that's supernatural about the staff that Moses had, nor was there some supernatural ability that Moses possessed. The mere splintered staff served as a symbol of the almighty power of Yahweh in the hand of Moses. It was God and him alone who was and is responsible and will forever be credited for the phenomena performed at the sea. You know, I love the deep relationship that we see between Yahweh and Moses throughout this book and even in Numbers, but I love the relationship we see here between Yahweh and Moses. Look at verse 16 and 17. Look at how verse 16 opens up with, as for you, as the Lord gave Moses instruction to perform the miraculous. Look at verse 17. The Lord says, and as for me, as he performed, uh, proceeds to inform Moses of his chastening of Pharaoh, See, Yahweh had a transparency that he had with Moses. It must have been great tranquility for Moses as God did not leave him in suspense of how he would defeat the Egyptians. He thought it was honorable to give Moses of what his plans were. Same can be said for believers today. As believers, we had the same great peace that Moses had as 
God has revealed his final plan to us in the scriptures. I mean, we just, we're studying it through, through now in, the, in morning service with Pastor Tom, where we're seeing that God has not left us wondering, how will this age end? He loves us enough to reveal what that looks like for us. See, the impossible is now made possible through the astounding work of Yahweh through Moses as he leads Israel through the dry land. But the plans of Yahweh do not stop at rescuing the Israelites. No, simply getting them across the dry land was not enough. No, his plans were to exercise his just punishment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Lord God caused the enemy to be stubborn as to lure them after the Israelites, even though logically it made no sense for chariots to go through the wet, muddy sand. That was just insensible. Why would they go after these people if they knew they had no shot with these chariots? But the hardening of the heart that the Lord did, this was Yahweh's providential plan even before the foundations of the world were laid. And why does Yahweh entice the Egyptians? He says, so that I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Something we must recognize through this display is the foretelling of God's salvation and judgment on sinners. The Lord receives his due honor and glory through the salvation of sinners who have repented of their sins and have been saved by the blood of Christ. And if you're here today as a follower of the Lord Jesus, we give honor to the Lord through our worship of him and what he's done at the cross. And we do so as we exercise even our spiritual gifts within the church and in our simply everyday conduct as we live out the character of Christ. That should be the motive, the goal for believers is honor him who has redeemed us. But God's plan involves the unbeliever as well. You know, if you sit here today as an enemy of God, just as Pharaoh and his armies once did, know that you will face the full judgment of Yahweh too. Your story will end much like Pharaoh's story ends. My plea with you, if you're not in Christ, is that you would turn from your sins which have made your heart, your heart hardened, made you callous towards God and come to the feet of Christ pleading in genuine repentance from your sins and, and, and follow him who leads us, who leads his people to the promised land. Don't wait until it's too late and the judgment waters have fully engulfed your life. Don't leave today without placing your hope and trust in the Lord. Come to our last two verses and learn of Yahweh's initiative Yahweh's initiative, 19 through 20. Let's look at verse 19. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them 
And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. As the Israelites continue their exodus, their voyage as instructed, we see the Israelites are now being protected in verses 19 and 20. You see this figure of the angel of God here in this text. Who is the angel of God, you might ask? Well, many theologians will argue that this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, and I would uh, concur with that idea. And there's a, one example that I believe makes a compelling case for this. If you can quickly turn with me to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. We see that, that phrase, angel of God or angel of the Lord, used a number of times in the Old Testament. I believe this makes a compelling case for this, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Just to give you some brief context of what's going on here in Genesis 16, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren, can't have children, so she gives her, her maid Hagar to Abraham uh, so that she would conceive a child. And Hagar conceives a child, but uh, Sarai, Sarah, has regrets and chases Hagar out of the city. And here we find the dialogue between Hagar and the angel of the Lord. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Look at verse 9. It says, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Look at 10. Verse 10, this is, where, uh, this is where it makes the argument. Verse 10, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. See, that's the kind of language, kind of uh, authority that one speaks of, that's a giver of life. This person, this angel of the Lord speaks of one with omnipotent power and supreme authority as only God would possess. You know, many times in the scripture when we see angels, they are the messengers. That's the translation of the word angel is messenger. They come on behalf of the Lord to express something that the Lord wants someone to know. But in this case, we see here that this angel of the Lord speaks with great authority, one who gives life and a, multiple, a multiplicity of life as he speaks to Hagar. So who is this angel of the Lord? Well, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And as we see in verse 19, the initiative of the pre-incarnate Christ shifts from leading his people to now he is behind protecting his people. See, both of these manifestations of Jesus as the angel of God and the pillar of cloud now stand behind Israel and in front of the Egyptian army. His presence to, to guard must have been a sigh of relief for the children of God. And at the end of verse 20, Moses writes, thus the one did not come near the other all night. 
And as we've learned time and time again through this study that God does not let a single person move unless he has providentially permitted it. The Egyptians would never get a hold of the Israelites. And there was no way that Israel would be able to flee and end up on the other side because they were divided by the protection of God. His providence is indeed astounding, is it not? So what, what can we take away from this lesson today? Got a few lessons that I've included in your handout. You'll find in your handout I've given four Four lessons we can draw from this text, and it's ultimately based on a reflection of the character of Yahweh through, this, uh, through these four acts, as we covered. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's very true here with these lessons. First one is that Yahweh is sovereign and his rule extends over all things. Give him due honor and praise. You know, those small trials, even the large trials in your life, who do you turn to? Do you rely on your own understanding? Or do you go to the Lord Yahweh? And do you give him honor and praise through the midst of the trials of life? Give him due honor and praise. Second lesson we can learn is that Yahweh is compassionate. And he does hear our earnest cry in times of trouble. Go to him in prayer. You know, he doesn't turn his face from those whom he loves. You know, whether it's, it's, it's the, the high tops of, of victories in our life, you know, the, the triumphs or the trials. Do you exercise a, uh, an ongoing practice of going to the Lord in prayer? Do you, priest, do you pray without ceasing? Is that heavy on your heart in, in different times of the day where you go to the Lord in prayer? To give him praise or, or to even pray for, on the behalf of others or perhaps for yourself. The Lord hears our prayers and we must go to him because he is a compassionate God. Third lesson is that Yahweh is Savior. Again, if you're not a believer here today, repent and place your faith in the Redeemer. Christ is coming again, and he will take home his church. Will you be a part of that rapture? Don't leave today if you have not placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, we see Yahweh is judge to the unrighteous and the protector of his adopted sons and daughters. Find peace and rest in the refuge of God's word. Isn't that a great comfort, believer, that we can go to the Lord and find comfort in his word? He is protector of us. And he will exercise judgment. You know, the, those who act unrighteously in our lives, maybe family members or friends, close acquaintances, whoever those people are in your life who do not know Christ, do you pray for them? Do you find opportunities to share the gospel with them? You know, our, our hearts are to see everyone saved. 
So are we doing what we are called to do, to live in accordance to sharing the gospel and being faithful? Because the great peace that we have as believers, we hope that one day those people in our lives that are not believers would be able to experience that great peace we have, that Yahweh is protector and exercise his providence over all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this afternoon, Lord, just enamored by your sovereign hand in this text, Lord, to see that you had this planned all along, that none of these events that have taken place were new to you. You had a great purpose to, to exercise your glory amongst the Israelites and even your enemies, the Egyptians. Lord, I pray for us today that we would take this text, Lord, and just reflect on that. Reflect on that you are a redeemer, that you are the God who saves and protects, or that you put us in your safe refuge, Lord, that nobody can move against us. Not even the gates of Hades could prevail against your people. Lord, I just pray that for those who are here today or perhaps people that we know and in our spheres of influences, Lord, that those who are not saved, that we would have opportunities to share the gospel faithfully and to see those who are your enemies become your children one day. Father, we thank you for Christ and the life that he has lived on our behalf, for the death at the cross and for his resurrection, giving us new life, Lord. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for this time together. We pray that you are honored and glorified through the word. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.